Welcome to The Draft Board, where hosts David Song and Tyson Workington tackle the topics that you want to hear. From the rink, to the turf, to the court, anything and everything, this is The Draft Board. Hi, good day ladies and gentlemen, and man, like, it's been a long time since we've uh, been with you here on The Draft Board. Alongside my good buddy Tyson, I'm David, and... As you no doubt can tell, we've taken a break for much of the summer. I'm sure that everybody has had their own things to do. I know that I've been keeping very busy uh, working out at Camp Evergreen and also, of course, watching six to nine hours of Olympics a day uh, because that is that is what I do. I love the Olympics more than any other sporting event on the planet Earth. And Tyson, you know this about me. How has your summer been? been really good you know i've been able to kind of just do my own thing and i'm having a i'm having an okay time here it's it's nice that we have some sun you know now and you know bc unfortunately everything going on over there the fires yeah. and stuff we're getting a lot of smoke but you know it's good to be in the summer it's always nice to have warm weather and and uh, yeah i'm doing well that's good to hear and we hope that everybody else has managed to i'm not so sure about staying busy but staying productive and and making the most out of the summer we we hope that everyone at least in Canada uh, has been celebrating the the end of the mask mandates as a hopefully a sign that everything is going to well again we can't be sure but hopefully things will be looking up from here it's been a difficult year for many but enough about that like we're not here to talk about COVID-19 we're here to talk about Mm -hmm. sports and Instead of just one feel-good feel good story, why don't we talk about a whole bunch of them? Because, hey, we're both Canadians. Mm -hmm. Uh, Canada has been, by our standards, lighting it up at these Olympic Games. And sure, we may never catch China, Russia, and, excuse me, China and the Russian Olympic Committee. Mm -hmm. Uh, Definitely. uh, Doping's bad, kids. Uh, (laughs) China, the Russian Olympic Committee, and the USA in terms of medal count, but there's been plenty to celebrate for Canadian sports fans during this Games, hasn't there? Yeah, it's been, you know, exciting to watch, and, you know, you always got to try and support your country. I'm a big fan of Canadian sports, Canadian athletes, and it's always great to see them do well in international competition. You know, I remember a few years ago, like, we didn't know very much about Penny Alexiak or Andre de Grasse, but they came on the world stage and, and they're, you know, super competitive and they've really galvanized our hearts. And I love that. And I think that's so awesome and so special because it's the next generation inspiring the next generation. Oh, man. Ever since I was a teenager, I've been like fantasizing about Marvel movies starring Penny Alexiak and Andre <laughs> de Grasse and specifically Canadian Olympic athletes. Like The Olympics have have captured my imagination throughout my life, uh, both the summer and the winter Olympics. And I, like you said, I, I, these athletes have galvanized our hearts. I think that's a great way to put that. I Certainly for me, uh, I've always looked up to athletes like this. And as an older person and as a sports journalist, I, I think I have a, well, I think I know I have a more mature outlook on, you know, humans are human beings and these aren't necessarily these, you know, these Superman and, and, and Captain America's out there mm-hmm. that we are looking up to, but they're still incredibly talented people. And 
you know, the ones that are worth cheering for are great human beings as well. And I think those are the ones that we celebrate the most or should celebrate the most. Mm-hmm. Penny Alexiak, in my opinion, definitely falls into that category. She was a four-time Olympic medalist back in Rio five years ago. Like, that was, been, was five years ago. That's insane to me. Yeah. You know, a 16-year-old girl, like... I was probably one of a minority of Canadians that actually knew that her older brother, Jamie Alexiak, was in the NHL. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this girl took every took the Olympics by storm. One of her medals was a gold medal in the 100-meter freestyle, a marquee event in the pool. And, you know, she was so impressive. And this year, she she lived up to the encore for, mm-hmm. for the most part. She wasn't able to medal again in the 100-meter freestyle, but... Let me tell you, folks, like she was up against a, an absolute murderer's row of mm-hmm. opponents, including the Australians. Like Emma McKeon is the fastest woman in the world this year. She raced like it. Uh, Kate Campbell had a, a really a redemptive Olympics after she, another Australian, by the way, she was a gold medal favorite in multiple sprint events in the 2016 Rio Olympics, didn't win anything. And was so crushed that she quit and retired for a couple of years. But she came back and she won, I believe it was a bronze medal in the 100 meter freestyle and a couple of relay medals with this incredibly strong Australian women's team. Coming out party for her. I I know for a fact that there's at least a couple. Oh, oh, there's also this lady named Siobhan Hahi from Hong Kong, Mm. who is... I believe she's like 23, 25. She is incredibly fast. And I believe she was the one that beat out Penny for the bronze Mm -hmm. in the 100 meter freestyle. I'll have to double check that a little bit later in the show. But anyways, it was, it was, even though Penny didn't quite manage to defend her gold in that event, she still has a silver uh, and two bronzes, including a very grueling one in the 200 meter freestyle. Very, very difficult event. And again, one thing that she said that I really thought was cool was that when she won her seventh ever Olympic medal, becoming, by the way, I'm sure all of you have heard this by now, the most decorated Canadian Olympian in history, either games, which is nuts. She's 21 years old. That's crazy. Uh, And she said in, in the interview that, like, I'm gl- and this was coming off a bit of a disappointment in the 100 meter freestyle and she said I'm glad I didn't win that medal on an individual event because to win it with my team is makes it 10 times sweeter mm-hmm. and that's uh, that's amazing like I mean 21 mm-hmm. year old professional athlete like many of them many of them hit stardom and it just all goes to their head but clearly she was raised the right way yeah that's really great to see that she has that team mindset and that willingness to be able to say yeah i want to celebrate this win with my team because you know we all worked so hard to get there i think that's something that's really special and really important and you know i just i, I always think back to you know the 2010 mm. vancouver olympics alex billado winning you know, winning the first gold medal on Canadian soil for that Olympics. And it was, and the floodgates just opened. And the floodgates opened. It was just such a special mm-hmm. moment. You know, I, I always remember that. Yeah. And, you know, for this Olympics, up until a few days ago, uh, all of our medals were won by women. Yes. <laughs> right? And, like, our women were just, you know, really right there at the top of the competition winning medals. And, and I think that's so great to see you know, the, the Canadian ladies just doing so well and performing at the highest stage and having that great success. And definitely Penny Alexiak is part of that. Mm. And, you know, I think that's something so special. And I think that, you know, with all of that being said, I, I'm so proud of the, the Canadian national team mm. for all that they've accomplished. And 
I, I can't wait to see how some of these athletes grow and develop and get better for even the next Olympics. Uh, right you are. I just wanted to uh, correct myself on something I said earlier. Siobhan Hai, the Hong Kong athlete, actually won mm-hmm. the silver in the 100-meter freestyle, which is like, I mean, really, Hong Kong. Like, mm-hmm. that's incredibly impressive. Kate Campbell of Australia was one that just beat out Penny Alexiak for the bronze in the 100-meter freestyle. I, I actually want to talk a bit about her because even though she's not Canadian, she's an Aussie, she's, uh, she's kind of a cool story because... She is, so she's about, I believe about six foot three, six foot four, and like an, an, an awesome specimen physically. And coming into the Rio 2016 Summer Olympics, she was a gold medal favorite in all the sprint disciplines because physically she had the tools and she had the, the raw, definitely the raw talent to do incredibly well. And she did not win any individual medals. Mm. Uh, her only medals were in the relays and... It was so crushing to her that she actually retired mm-hmm. for a period of time to to deal with it. And so to see her come back and win a few more medals with the Aussie relay team, which is honestly in most of the races, they were very overpowered. But for her to finally get her own individual medal at the Olympics is something that I, for one, I feel like that's good. Like even though, you know, she beat out my girl, but mm-hmm. it's still sort of a, a silver lining or a bronze lining that... I, I feel good about because I think a redemption is a, a huge part of the narrative of sports in general. And whenever you can take it, uh, it's good to see. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the Olympics and, and international competition usually brings out some of the best stories in athletes, you know, just the adversity that some of these athletes have to go to, and then they get to the podium and, and they finally get to have that opportunity to, you know, celebrate all that they've accomplished so far. I think that's something that is so spectacular for us to watch. You know, as an athlete, I, I understand that the amount of preparation and practice and and treatment and just the, the work that it takes for, you know, you to perform at your mm. best. And, you know, these athletes for the Olympics, they're performing at the highest level. They're, you know, the stakes have never been higher and you know they've been training four years for this moment all that time all that preparation all of that work and we get to see the culmination of that and we get to see the results and we get to celebrate with these athletes when they Mm. do well yeah and that's just something that is so spectacular Mm. and i think like as a viewer even as a former athlete oftentimes i forget myself Mm. how much work some of these athletes have put in 100 especially like some of the harder ones like the triathlon the decathlon like the multi-level of events like man like that must take so so much time for sure it yeah and um yeah you know what it's super (laughs) awesome to be able to see and celebrate with the athletes as they do well regardless of where they're from yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, going back to Penny Alexiak for a second, it as you know, it amuses me to no end that uh, <laughs> Jamie Alexiak is literally in the NHL. Just signed and, a twenty-plus million-dollar contract. And his baby sister was more popular than him at sixteen years of age. <laughs> and uh, you know, now granted, Jamie since then has made a Stanley Cup final with Dallas as a, a top four, top six defenseman. He's still, so he's definitely more famous now than it was five years ago. Still, I think that there's. <laughs> I think there's little doubt that overall Penny is a more popular athlete than Jamie probably is. And I mean, I love Jamie Alexiak. He's a he's this huge 
defenseman who is fully capable of dominating, but mm-hmm. it's just, I, I like the dude a lot, but it's still just so funny to me that this is their family dynamic yeah. and what I wouldn't give to be a fly on the wall in some of those dinner table conversations. <laughs> Seeing Penny Alexiak and, and yeah, I, I remember she tweeted out one thing about how when she was in school, she told one of her teachers that she wanted to be a swimmer and that was something that she was passionate about. And the teacher said, you'll right. never, you'll never do this. You'll never, you'll never go anywhere with swimming and she's just like, just shout out to my teacher who said this back in the fourth grade or something like that. <laughs> and here I am winning medals now. So I, I think that it's really interesting to see like how much, you know, Penny has gone through the adversity, like in her own life, going up and going through the pool and going through swimming and, you know, her ability to compete at the highest level at 16 years old is remarkable enough, but just to see how far she's gone since then. Yeah. And like we said before, she's still only 21. She's probably like, you know, if all goes right, Lord willing, she's got two more Olympics left in her. Maybe more. Uh, maybe more. Maybe three. Hey, certainly with Brent Hayden coming back at 37 years of age, <laughs> uh, that's another one right there. Like Brent Hayden retired after the 2012 Olympics after becoming a bronze medalist. And then he fell back in love with the sport and came back successfully at 37. He didn't win any medals, but... In the men's 4x100 relay, he swam 100 meters in about, I believe, 47.9 seconds at 37 years of age. That's impressive. Incredibly impressive. And at the other end of the spectrum, some of you may know Canada has a 14-year-old mm. on their Olympic swim team. Her name is Summer McIntosh. If memory serves, she beat Penny Alexiak in the 200 meter <laughs> at the Canadian Olympic trials. And she said at least... Two, she didn't win any individual medals, but she set at least two Canadian records, competing against 20, 25, 30-year-old women who have, like, just so much more muscle and strength and power than her. And And experience. And experience on top of it. And it's absolutely nuts how this this sort of thing just keeps happening at the Olympic Games. Yeah, it's, you know, it's always crazy to see some of these stories, like, come out of nowhere. And, you know... I love the storylines and I think that that's something that like sports is always going to have because it's so compelling. I think there's a real big difference in sports between looking at a piece of paper and seeing the results. But as human beings, we gravitate towards people with stories and the stories that are told at the Olympics are emotional and they're heartbreaking and they're overcoming and it's so incredible to learn about some of these athletes stories where they come from you know what they had to go up through what their context is like are they a new young Mm. in-breaking athlete or are they nearing the end of their career hoping for one last gasp at a medal i think that it's super great to learn and and hear about some of these stories and and yeah root for the stories and root for the narratives Mm. that these people have because that's what they've lived to get here like how many sports can you have a team with an age range of 14 to 37? Summer <laughs> McIntosh, this skinny junior high girl who yeah. is ludicrously fast uh, <laughs> and has a ludicrous amount of endurance mm-hmm. to be able to compete at the world level. On the other hand, you know, Brent Hayden, this powerfully built six foot four but 
aging athlete who decided he was done with retirement for the time being. He even tweeted, put out on social media after his games that he has currently not ruled out Paris as a possibility. Right. So wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Who knows? <laughs> but that's just that's that's just so so cool. And here's another incredible story for you guys. Uh, Maggie McNeil, who, as some of you know, is won three also three medals for the pool in uh, for Canada, including a 100-meter butterfly victory over the reigning Olympic champion Sarah Schuström of Sweden. Mm-hmm. Incredibly impressive. She was actually born in China. Mm. She was actually born in China, but was abandoned by her biological parents when mm. she was only a few months old, and she was adopted by her current Canadian family, which is why she's now a Canadian and now an Ontarian. And, uh, you know, first and foremost, it's... It's always amazing, I think, that families who want to adopt can sometimes just do such a service to the world for giving children a a second chance at life in many ways. However, when those children end up becoming Olympic medalists, you also kind of have that athletic side of it where, man, China maybe let one get away here. China, with their incredibly strong swim team, if things had if things had played out differently, maybe they could have added another gold medal to to their hall. But instead, as Canadians, we're the beneficiary of that, and I, I will take it. Yeah, I I think that people there are some countries that don't necessarily like that about international competition. They they kind of like a more nationalist kind of thing, like you play for the country that you were born in, right? That kind of thing. But I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that if you're an immigrant of a country, you're a part of that country. Mm. You're now Canadian, you know. And I think that you know Canada has done a good job of letting people come to this nation who are from different cultures, different backgrounds, different you know nations, and you know they come in and they want to be Canadian. And I think like a good example of this is Alfonso Davies. Who, Absolutely. You know, he was born in different country. Uh, soccer star, uh, FYI. Yeah, he's a soccer star. He's a very, very prominent player. He plays uh, for uh, Bayern Munich in the German uh, league in, for soccer there. And, mm. you know, he was born in Ghana. His family came over when he was young and kind of grew up, uh, you know, kind of around, mm. you know, uh, I think it was Toronto and that kind of great. No, it was Edmonton. Sorry. It was the Edmonton kind of area. And, Man, Alfonso Davies, he's proud to be Canadian. You know, he loves representing Canada in international competition. And so do these athletes, you know. And who am I to say that their home country isn't here? I I, I think that that's something so special that these, you know, people come from, you know, impoverished communities or, you know, tough neighborhoods or, or you know, countries that, that they don't want to be in. And they come to Canada and then they get to represent Canada as a, as a nation. Yeah. Yeah, I again, I couldn't agree with you more as as the son of two immigrants myself. I you know, for me personally, there has not been a single minute of my life where I've identified as Chinese or even Chinese Canadian. I, I am Canadian. Right. Period. And I and I'm also American. Even though you were born in New York. But but I am also American in, in a sense. I mean, I'll be honest, Canada will always be number one in my heart. Like I am Canadian, but I'm also American because I was I was born there and I, you know, I thank God for the uh, the opportunity to have grown up in this country, to also have been born in the States, which has opened so many doors and might open so many more in my sports journalism career. I think it's I think it's awesome that sometimes people get to find a second lease on life in mm-hmm. in another country. And I fully agree with you. There is much 
a part of that country as 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 anybody else and that's what that's what matters most and this is actually a great transition into the next thing i was going to talk about because lamont marcel jacobs the current fastest man in the world at 100 meters Mm -hmm. Same story as what you were just talking about. He's actually an American, but he has an Italian mom. His parents divorced when he was very young, and he switched allegiances to Italy to compete in the Olympics. And he is the man that won this year's 100-meter final as the Olympic champion. How about that? Yeah, that's interesting. Wow. Yeah, and he ran a heck of a time, too, 9.80 seconds which, by the way, is the same time that Usain Bolt ran to win the gold in Rio five oh, nice. years ago. He's a he's a big man, fast guy, uh, and obviously he finished ahead of an American, Fred Curley, 9.84 seconds. The cool thing about Fred Curley is he was a converted 400-meter runner. Mm. Very rare skill set to be able to convert from really kind of a much more of an intermediate distance to mm-hmm. a dead sprint like the 100 and the man of the hour, Andre de Grasse, who won his second bronze medal in the 100 meters. Uh, that obviously, as we know, was not the peak of his Olympic Games. Mm-hmm. But one thing that's very interesting that a lot of people may not know, uh, if, if they're not, they don't follow track and if they don't uh, pay attention to Olympics coverage, is that sprinting, is about more than just going fast. It's obviously about going fast, but one thing that I've really learned this games is that you actually need to relax in order to be a great sprinter and to run your best. You Same for distance events, but in a different way. But when you think about a race that's over in, well, for men, like less than 11 seconds, it may seem very, very strange to say that, oh, you need to relax. But it's actually it, it's actually true because if you watch the athletes, the more tense you get, the more you know you're not going to be able to actually perform at your best because your muscles are are locked up. You're not actually be able to do your best. And the other thing is is mentally, right? I, I think we know across all sports, a stressed out athlete is usually not going to perform their best because they'll get in their own heads and they will oftentimes fail to execute a task that their body's physically capable of executing because they weren't in the right headspace. And if you still don't believe me, let's talk about a man named Trayvon Brumell, who is an American sprinter. He, guess what? He was actually the gold medal favorite Mm. in the men's 100 meters this year. He dominated the track season beforehand, world's fastest man with a 9.77 second clocking, Mm. which if he had ran that in the final, would have beat Lamont Jacobs for for gold. gold. And anything, by the way, just anything under 9.9 seconds in men's sprinting is elite, and anything under 9.8 is is world-class like that's like franchise yeah that's that's franchise like speed we can't always keep comparing every sprinter to bolt no because bolt Mm. was like one in a million one in usain bolt's world record guys 9.58 seconds he's (laughs) the only man in history to have gone under nine six and that i'm not sure that world record is going to get touched for a long time yeah it might be a while before somebody goes after that record but you know, 9-8 is very, very, very good. Yeah, and, and so, anyway, so Trayvon Brumell, just to give you an idea, he really burnt it down uh, during the course of the track season. He won a lot of races this year, 
and he had the fastest clocking in the world this year. But here's the thing. He gets to the Olympic Games. He runs 10.05 in his heat, Mm -hmm. which is a problem because he finished fourth Mm. in his heat, and only the top three get to advance the semifinals. And so he actually had to sit there and wait until it was determined that after all the heats, he was among the two fastest losers. And he did make the semifinals. Uh, So a man with a 9.77 personal best went to the semifinals, Guess what? He ran 10 seconds flat Hmm. in the semifinals in a photo finish with a Nigerian, Enoch Adagoki. They had to go to the thousandths of a second Hmm. to separate these two. And it turned out that Enoch Adagoki crossed the line in the semifinal one one thousandth of a second ahead of the world number one Trayvon Brumel. And guess what? Trayvon Brumel was not among the the two fastest losers, and he did not even qualify for the Olympic final in which Andre de Grasse won a bronze and Lamont Jacobs won a gold. How about that? Yeah, that's that's probably not something that he wanted. You know, I think that when you go, if you were to go and ask him, he would be extremely disappointed with that result. He certainly was. <laughs> yeah, and I, I can understand that, you know... For me, growing up in sports, like crunch time was always something that I sometimes struggled with. And, you know, going up and and it's kind of like the big game, the big final, this is your big moment. It puts a lot of pressure and a lot of stress. And if you don't know how to handle that, then it's going to affect you and it's going to be tough. And, you know, it's unfortunate for him that it had to happen this way. And obviously I I wish him the best in the next time he competes. But I, I hope that he can take this as a learning example and not get too hung up on it and learn from his mistakes and learn how to control his, you know, maybe his mind more, or if it was a technique problem, maybe it's a technique thing that he needs to fix, but not everything that needs to get fixed in sports is physical. A lot of times it's mental, Yeah. you know, like I remember growing up in hockey as a goalie, like I remember I was, I was 13 years old and I was talking with this coach and my coach was like, Hey, what I want you to do is before the game, spend 15 to 20 minutes visualizing you making saves. That's it. And when you're visualizing you making saves, it helps you in the game. And I couldn't believe how much it helped my game once I started doing that because things would happen in the game and I was already prepared for it because I had already spent 15 minutes visualizing it before the game. So it just helped me get in the right mindset, the right Mm -hmm. frame of mind Mm -hmm. to go and perform and and play sports. So I think that as an athlete, I understand how much of a mental grind it can be doing highly competitive sports. And I wasn't even at this level of competition. So I can only imagine on how much more this is a ramped up extreme for sprinters, especially because when you have no margin for error no. in, a, in, a, in a 10 second, 11 second race, there's there's no room for error. Yeah. You have... A tenth of a second could be the difference between first and no medal. Right? You have to be on for the entire race mentally and physically and that's what i think makes the 100 meter so intense and so grueling is because it's so short and it's so fast it's just boom and it's Mm. done 
And one thing that Bromel himself admitted in interviews is that he knew his form wasn't very good. Mm -hmm. And when I was watching the races, I saw that in both of his races, he was tense, he looked stressed, and contrary to what might seem intuitive, he actually wasn't able to run fast because of those reasons. I really want to share with everyone something that Donovan Bailey said uh, multiple times over the course of CBC's Olympics coverage, that Donovan Bailey pointed out that Trayvon was essentially trying to win every single weekend on the track season. He ran like he was trying to, he ran like he was trying to prove a point. He ran like he was trying to just rack up the, the, all those victories. And to be sure, he, he did. But at the same time, you can imagine that that takes a very heavy physical toll on you to be able to run that fast every single weekend. It also takes a huge mental toll on you because you are the fast considered the fastest man in the world and you want to live up to that and it just seems like Bromel for whatever reason maybe he was worn down both physically and mentally he was he was uh, not peaking at the right time mm -hmm. and, and it showed whereas Andre de Grasse listen like his his numbers in the if I'm, if I'm being honest his numbers in the 100 meters 200 is a completely different story for him, but the 100 meters is not, it's very good, but it's not great. Like his personal best that he won the bronze medal with is a 9.89. Very good. It's world class, but he's not getting down into that 9.8 flat, 9.7 range that some other guys can. But he clearly peaked at the right time, and Donovan Bailey, the obviously the former Canadian Olympic champion, pointed out, Andre wasn't trying to win every weekend over the course of the track season. He was using every race as an opportunity to try out different strategies and to refine technical errors in his running, which allowed him to peak at the right time. And coupled with his, you know, his charming and very lovable ability to not become stressed on the biggest <laughs> stage in the world. Like, you know, before his races, like he's, he's waving to the crowd, he's throwing up peace signs and everything. Whereas when you looked at Trayvon Brumel, he was very, not just stoic, but he looked a bit tense and I think in the end it just goes to your point that sports is a mental thing as much as it is a physical thing and when you are able to relax mentally it allows your body to maximize physically yeah I think so and you know that's a really good point that was made by Donovan Bailey there who said that you know he DeGrasse used his time to refine his skill and I think like obviously you go into every competition trying to do well you're not trying to lose. Right. You're but, not trying to mail it in in the heats and run like 12 seconds. Right. In this case. <laughs> that's not what you're trying to do. You're constantly pushing yourself. But I think it's important to have that awareness mm. of going, okay, I want to get better. I'm not going to just do the same thing every single time. So that way I can just do repetitively and have kind of the same result, even if that result is first place. You know, I think or maybe it's fifth, maybe it's fifth. Right. But like if you're constantly doing the same result, you're not or constantly doing the same thing. You're not growing your game. And I think that a lot of athletes get stuck in this mentality mm -hmm. of I'm going to do the same thing that I've always done. I'm not going to try and grow my game because what is done for me has worked up until mm. this point. Uh, and then people like Ben Simmons finds out it doesn't work it's, actually. Exactly, right? And then, well, once you get to that point where what you have always done 
has gotten you to the point where you can go no further, mm. all of a sudden, all of your other skills are so far behind that it takes you so much longer to catch up in the long run so that way you can break through this breaking point. Mm -hmm. And when athletes spend time trying to develop their game and grow their game in multiple areas, mm -hmm. in multiple ways, such as DeGrasse running different techniques or a basketball player mm -hmm. learning different footworks or different shooting strokes or things like that, or a hockey player you know, learning different shots, different deeks, different mm -hmm. angles to release. The or puck. to back check more. Or, or, or to, you know, learn defensive schemes mm -hmm. even, right? If you try and grow your game from a younger age, you're going to have a better chance of having those breakthroughs later mm -hmm. on in your career. And I think that that's what you're talking about here is that sometimes athletes, they get stuck in the same mentality of doing the same thing over and over again because mm -hmm. it's giving them success. And then they eventually hit a wall mm. and they're not able to break through that. Yeah. And we definitely wish Trayvon Brumel the best of luck at the next international competition. He also is not going to win a relay medal because the, and another shocker, the United States four by 100 meter relay team failed to advance out of the heats oh. despite having Trayvon Brumel led off Fred Curley. He won silver in the hundred meters, second leg, Ronnie Baker, who finished fifth in the 100-meter final and third leg, and they had a less elite, I think, runner, Craven Gillespie, run the anchor leg. On paper, the U.S. relay team was by far the most dominant and most overpowered in the field. They literally had three world-class sprinters, including one in Fred Curley, who did peak at the right time and won an Olympic silver, but a botched baton handoff between Fred Curley and Ronnie Baker mm. cost the team precious seconds that ultimately put them, I think, into fourth or fifth place in the heats, behind Canada, by the way, and they did not advance, and that was an absolute shocker. That's uh, that's tough. Like The fact that it's a botched handoff, I think that's really hard, especially for the two that botched the handoff. Like That's, that's going to weigh on them. I know it will. Like, they're going to think about that moment, about that handoff, and go, we practiced the handoff. Like, I remember, like, I, in high school, I was on the track and field team. I never did track. I always did field. <laughs> Cause of course. Because you're a big boy. Because I'm a big boy. Like, but I remember, like, I was always out there practicing with the track and field athletes in high school. And in high school, running track, doing the relays, I remember for the 4x100, 4x200 relays that we ran... It was almost always practicing the handle of the batons. And it was very little to do with running. It was kind of just, mm. all right, we're going to learn how to get yeah. this handoff right. And then we're going to learn how to run with it. Yeah. And that's something that they teach from you at age mm. 14, right? Yeah. So yeah. so these athletes, it, it's a mental mistake. It's an error. And it's always hard to see that. And, it, and if it costs mm. you a chance at a medal because of that error, it's always tough. Um, it, it, I think that with those athletes, I think it would have been disappointing mm. for them not to qualify if they didn't have the baton malfunction. Oh, immensely so. Huh? But, but I think this makes it worse. Uh, it, it, oh, it does. And again, just to let you know, I mean, I, I reviewed the stats for that particular heat. And again, this is how razor close sprint events can be both in, on the track and in the pool. So 
Canada essentially uh, came within a thousandth of a second of China in that heat, 37.92 seconds. The United States ran 38.10. That's less than three-tenths of a second difference. And uh, I have to correct myself again. They weren't in fourth or fifth. They were sixth in that heat behind Germany mm. and Ghana. Who has ever heard of the U.S. 4x100 men's relay team losing to to Germany or Ghana that many times, right? Well, and Germany had some really good sprinters in the 80s, but there's some questions about some of those... That, that era of sprinting right. because of PEDs and stuff. And especially not in recent memory right. as much. Yeah. But, yeah, when you look at the relay handoff, essentially they, they botched it and Ronnie Baker ended up putting his hand into Fred Curley's face for a bit. And they fumbled around for a little bit before he actually put the baton in his hand. And there we go, less than three-tenths of a second difference. But it's a sprint event. Mm -hmm. That's all you need to drop out of a qualifying uh, spot. And again, very, very, very shocking. Equally shocking, but in a good way. And let's talk again about breaking barriers. Andre de Grasse, 19.62 seconds, Canadian record, 200 meters, gold medal. The, guys, this is the first time, as I'm sure many of you have heard, since 1928 that a Canadian man has won Olympic gold in the 200 meters. And it's the first time since 1996 that a Canadian man has won Olympic gold in any sprinting was Donovan Bailey? Which was Donovan in 1996. Yeah. And we were talking about this on the on the trip here, Tyson. Uh, Andre de Grasse is not the fastest starter. He probably wouldn't be great at something like the 40-yard dash. But his high-end speed endurance and his top speed is absolutely phenomenal. And it really shines in the 200 meters. Yeah, I think when you watched him out of the 100 meter, you could kind of see like his start wasn't as good as a lot of the other athletes there, but he was able to catch up to a lot of the athletes in the last 50 meters or so and chase down some people and kind of finish third place. If Honestly, if you give him 25 more meters, he might have won that race. He might have, and you, you don't know that, right? Yeah. But it, with Andre de Grasse, I think he's kind of like... Uh, Usain Bolt, for example, always did this, and I'm not comparing Bolt to DeGrasse because there's a massive size difference. But what Usain Bolt always had is he was extremely long-legged, so mm. that means he always did well in the back half of the race, but he had some trouble getting out of the gates. Mm. Um, that's kind of the same situation when I watch Andre DeGrasse, is that he doesn't always have the best start, even though he's 5'10", kind of a, a smaller frame than a lot of like tall, lanky sprinters. But DeGrasse, he uses, he, he's able to hold that speed that he has at top speed, and he's able to carry it through the 100 meters, I think better than anyone. And because of that, it translates so well to the 200 meters because he's able to reach that top speed and stay at that top speed for longer. And that's what's separating him from going, you know, from being a, a good to great athlete in the 200 sprint is that his, his ability to stay at top speed for longer. During his gold medal winning race, the CBC uh, analysis team, commentary team, pointed out to us viewers that Andre de Grasse in that race held his top speed for 180 out of 200 meters, which, if you don't know track, that's insane. That's absolutely insane. That's just human beings. Most human beings don't work that way. You can hit your top speed, but even most of the best in the world, 
lactic acid buildup just takes over mm -hmm. and your muscles start to weaken and you you can't maintain that speed. And in a lot of sprint events, even in sprint events, it's actually about who can slow down the least. And the reason why Andre de Grasse, he was in about fifth place at the turn and he just hunted down two world-class athletes in Noah Lyles and Kenny Benarek. Noah Lyles, the this year's, again, fastest man in the world at 200 meters, a 19.50 personal best, but he wasn't able to run it on that particular night. Andre hunted him down and hunted down Kenny Bednarek, the other American ace, and he and he crushed them over the last 100 meters. And it was because he was able to maintain his speed longer than everybody else. And this goes to my point about, this goes to my point about relaxing. Yeah, 10 seconds, 20 seconds. That's not a very long time at all. However, it is definitely enough time for an athlete to win or lose themselves the race. And Andre was mentally relaxed. He was very confident. And when he especially in the 200s, he hits that bend, he knows his high-end speed is there, and he was able to execute, and he slows down less than everybody else, and the rest is literally history, and uh, athletic analysis, I'm going to put the athletic analysis aside for a brief moment to say, you know, today, this morning when I watched that medal ceremony, and to see a Canadian on top of the podium, not just in, you know, some niche event like race walking or steeplechase, but <laughs> in a marquee olympic event like the men's 200 meters and to hear our national anthem play uh goosebumps man it was awesome yeah, that's super cool also i uh, just want to mention this is the first year that surfing was uh an olympic sport and i think that's that that's super cool and i just have a quick story that I'd, i remembered sure that thing. i wanted to share about it in the women's uh final the lady who won it was actually one of the indigenous people's from hawaii wow so she was able to win gold and it's really interesting because she started off surfing but not on an actual surfboard she was using like these she was making her own surfboards out of stuff that she had found around her local like community mm. and she was surfing on not actual surfboards oh. so it's incredible to see like that's where she got her start and, you know, surfing is a very local indigenous culture thing yeah. that is very important to them. So I, I think that that's super cool that she was able to do well mm. at the Olympics. First time ever that it's been an Olympic sport. Certainly that certainly that is the case. And again, especially with the the tragedies that have taken place throughout history involving indigenous peoples from a lot of different places like, you know, yeah, I'm proud to be Canadian, but especially like, you know, this whole residential school legacy and stuff like that. It's absolutely horrible. And I, you know, I'm glad that it's at least coming to light so that we can acknowledge these atrocities and, and do our best to pursue reconciliation and, mm -hmm. and closure for them. But I also think that sport has the power to, in some small way, begin to address these types of, of things and again even though i know that it's not canadian indigenous but still uh you know a, a native hawaiian woman mm -hmm. coming out and just showing her stuff on the biggest stage in the world and winning a gold medal is definitely something that i can mm -hmm. think i rather i think we can all feel really good about it yeah. so i thank you for sharing her name that is, story uh, her name is carissa moore ah yeah, well so, well she's uh She's going to be a hero uh, mm -hmm. on those islands now, uh, if she wasn't already. She's but... a member of the Surfers Hall of Fame, uh, you know, so she's definitely been, you know, kind of in that extremely competitive field out there in Hawaii. So, 
but that's great that she was able to do it on the Olympic stage. Yeah, absolutely. Good for her. And uh, last thing about the Olympics, at, at least for now, is another another clutch performance on the biggest stage. We're talking, of course, about decathlete Damian Warner mm. of Ontario, who earlier today became the fourth man in history to score 9,000 plus points mm -hmm. in a decathlon. And if, if you don't know how a decathlon works and also the women's equivalent, the heptathlon, basically you have to be the most well-rounded athlete over seven if it's the heptathlon, 10 events if it's the decathlon. And how it works is that you're not racing necessarily your opponents, even though, well, you are, but you're trying to put out the best performance possible in every event. And there's a very complicated system where depending on where you finish, you will score different amounts of points in every single event. For example, if you run the 100 meters in 10.6 seconds, there is a established system that says you will get X number of points for that. But if you run it in 10.3, you'll get more points. And likewise, you know, in the javelin throw, if you throw at 44 meters, you're going to get X number of points. But if you throw at 47 meters, you're going to get more points. And if you throw it, like, obviously, the, the more is the better. And so this whole point thing is an indication of how well-rounded these, these decathletes and heptathletes are. And that is, of course, how we crown what is considered by many to be the world's best athlete overall. And so the fact that Damian Warner, not even, he didn't just win the gold medal, like, Another gold medal for Canada. I'm stoked about that. I'm over the moon. Mm -hmm. But for him to break that 9,000-point barrier, which, by the way, is a, is a new Olympic record, I believe, and it is, and it just means, though, you know, that not only did Damien win gold, not only was he the best in the world this year, he scored historically well-rounded numbers in each of his 10 events. And... That is that. That's just otherworldly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's super awesome to see Damian Warner really put it all together in kind of the the way that he did here at Tokyo. Like he ran, he tied his best time in the hundred meters. So like that's something that you know he definitely was on his game this Olympics, which is super great. You know, he's 31 years old. He's been doing this for many, many years. Bronze medal five years ago in Rio. Yeah, and you know, like, he's 31. He might, he's going to be 34-ish around the time that he gets to the next Olympics. This might be, this was probably one of his last best chances to win gold. And, you know, he's been, you know, he was competing against guys that were much younger than him. You know, and he was just able to put it all together, and that's something that's so great. Like you said, only four people have hit the 9,000 uh, point mark for a decathlon, uh, a decathlon performance, and Damien did it, and that's something that's super impressive, especially at the world stage. So, yeah, what a great showing, what a great opportunity for him, and a London, Ontario native, and and he was able to really showcase the strength and endurance that he has as a true athlete and yeah we're just proud of him certainly we are and just just to finish making this point uh the decathlon includes a ridiculous plethora of events that test different aspects of your skill set everything from the 100 meters to the 1500 meters discus shot put javelin high jump pole vault mm -hmm. 110 meter hurdles it's absolutely bananas how well-rounded you have to be to be remotely competitive at this and on top of that it's a grueling two-day event where damien and his competitors this week 
they were each day they were out at the track with their first event beginning at nine in the morning. At nine in the morning, it was already forty plus degrees Celsius in Tokyo. It's oh. ludicrously hot. Oh. And their final event, both days, went at 10 p.m. at night. And so not only do you have to do all these super different events that test your skill set in every conceivable way, you have to do it for, what is that, 12 hours more? Well, I'm sure you're not running. 12, 13 hours, (laughs) hours a day. And, like, obviously they get breaks and refreshments and, like, you know, conditioning breaks in between, but but nonetheless, just that with that blazing heat and it's that mental test of okay, like I just I did all these events and now I have to do these later on in the day. I, I get a bit of a break, yeah, but forty plus degrees Celsius and just the length of time over these over two days, very, very oh. intensive and and let's be real. All of that work for a chance at just one medal, you have to love sport to do that. Oh, oh man. Like, that's so much work for one medal. I can't believe it. Like, that's just so much training, so much work. And I can't believe, like, that this is even an event just because there's it's so intense and so grueling to do a decathlon. Like, think about the peak physical shape you have to be in to get to the point that Danian Warner is at and just maintain it for multiple Olympics, you know, and that's just something that is so incredible mm. and I can't be more proud of Like that's something that's so special. Mm. I, I can't even begin to think about like how his body is in peak, peak physical condition. Like I honestly, I feel like a decathlete is as close to Captain America as we're ever going <laughs> to get in, in real life. And, of course, a quick shout out to fellow Canadian Pierce Lepage, who finished fifth in the, in the decathlon in his first kick at the Olympic can. Mm. Very, very solid effort from him. Also, interesting factoid, uh, when Damien won bronze in 2016, he finished behind uh, American Ashton Eaton, the who was at, in the top of the world back when he was competing. And Damien Warner leapfrogged Kevin Mayer for first on the podium. Kevin finished second again. So that's just kind of cool how that played out. Yeah, that's really cool. Now, with that being said, as you know, Tyson, I could talk about the Olympics for literally days, but we do have a a good amount of other material to Mm -hmm. to bring to you folks. And again, in in true relay sprinter fashion, let's not botch the the handoff. (laughs) And I'm going to throw it over to you for what we got next. Yeah, so we got the NHL coming up next. So we had some business in the NHL. We here on the Draft Board Podcast, we like to talk about the drafts. And in the NHL, we had two. So we get two whole drafts, and we're going to talk about the Seattle Kraken draft that happened first. So uh, just because that's what happened chronologically, and I think it's a good way to kind of set up how it happened. So for those of you who may not have watched Seattle, Kraken hosted their own kind of outdoor event in Seattle. It was, you know, a great opportunity for fans to get acquainted with their new team members. They took some interesting players. They had some interesting choices, which we can now talk about now. But yeah, it's just an opportunity for the newest expansion franchise to come into the NHL to have a chance to make a spectacle. You know, I personally can't wait for the uh, the crackheads to oh. file into the crack house yep. for the inaugural season of the Seattle Kraken. And you know what? From my point of view, this is just another team that I can root for over Vancouver. So I am <laughs> all about that. Oh, man. There's already going for the, geo- the geographical rivalry between Seattle and Vancouver. 
first home game for Seattle, it's against Vancouver. So, you know, it's going to be probably a win for Seattle in that game. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? uh, If Seattle sweeps the season series against Vancouver, I will laugh so hard and I'll be quite happy. Yes. It's an interesting kind of dynamic that the Kraken are going to find themselves in. A lot of people are thinking that the Pacific Division is going to be particularly weak. Mm. They don't expect the Ducks or the Sharks to make any noise in the in the playoffs anywhere. And I mean, to be fair, those are both old teams that I think their windows have closed. Yeah. Uh, it's really too bad, but their big guns are, are, are old now, and they're just not who yeah. they used to be, and they don't seem... I don't think they have a great deal coming down the pipeline, at least in the next few years. So yeah. we'll and, see. And you got like Vegas is the powerhouse in the Pacific right now. Arizona has moved over to the central, but the Canadian teams of Vancouver, mm. Edmonton and Calgary have a lot of question marks sure. to say the least about kind of what they're going to, what their playoffs sure. hopes are going to look like. Mm. So a lot of people are giving the Kraken after this draft, a legitimate shot at making the playoffs. Sure. And so why don't we actually start with Jamie Alexiak? Okay. Uh, it, it always, I think it's a good transition <laughs> uh, since we gave his sister so much love. But look, Jamie Alexiak, six foot seven, 250, 255 pounds. He's like, those are NFL tight end measurables. He's a juggernaut. He's very strong, very big, and he definitely has the physical tools needed to be a dominant defender in, in the NHL. He was a top four, top six guy with the Dallas Stars during their cup final run last year where they lost to none other than in the incredibly overpowered Tampa Bay Lightning. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, if you can be a regular starting player on a Stanley Cup final making team, that shows that, you know, your career has advanced to another level. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I feel really good for him. You know, he's honestly a guy that like I, when I was playing, you know, EA Sports NHL games in the past, you know I love to edit all the player ratings for fun, and he's a guy that I always buffed in terms of his physical <laughs> traits because it's just the idea of a, a a player who's that big and that strong. You know, you want that guy to be able to make the most out of his physical gifts, and, you know, I think he, at least in theory, he brings size, strength, and playoff experience to the Seattle Kraken, and I think he, I think he should in all likelihood be an asset. Yeah, no, he definitely will. Here's my thing about the Seattle Kraken as a whole, and it applies here to Jamie Alexiak, is that what the Kraken did, which I think was really interesting and weird, is they took a lot of unrestricted free agents mm. and then signed... Oh, and Alexiak being one of them. Yes, Alexiak like being one of them and signed them after the expansion draft, which I guess kind of makes sense a little bit, but not really. Like, for me personally, it would make way more sense to draft another player who is under contract with the Dallas Stars and go to Jamie Alexiak in free agency and say, hey, Jamie Alexiak, we're really interested in you. Do you want to sign with us? Mm -hmm. And here's a contract to play for the Kraken. And as you said earlier, he did end up signing a fairly sizable $20-plus million contract anyway, Mm -hmm. which implies that they had a realistic shot of getting him in free agency. Right, and they did this with Adam Larson, who was a UFA who they picked from Edmonton. They did this with Chris Dreger, who was a goalie who they picked from Florida. Uh, Shout-out Calgary Hitman. Shout-out Calgary Hitman. And, you know, they, they did this with a number of other players. And I just think that it's interesting that they went after unrestricted free agents and tried to sign them. Like, there were a couple of free agents who they drafted that weren't signed, and they ended up going to another team. For example, John Quentinville of the Chicago Blackhawks. He was a UFA. 
Bayreuther, Gavin Bayreuther from Columbus. He was drafted by the Kraken in the expansion draft. He wasn't signed. And then he went to unrestricted free agency and signed back with Columbus. So to me, it kind of seemed in that situation like it was a little bit of a waste of a pick. I, I, I don't understand quite what they were doing. I guess if the Kraken wanted that guy and they wanted him bad enough and you go out and you get him and you sign him, I guess they're happy with that. But to me, in an expansion draft that was, in my opinion, as lenient as this one was, like, for example, this expansion draft, you protected seven forwards, 3D, and a goalie, or eight players and a goalie, one of those two options. In previous years, you could protect nine forwards and 4D and a goalie. Like, that's the situation. That's That's what Columbus and the Minnesota Wild had to deal with. So the expansion process was more lenient for Vegas and Seattle this time around than it was in previous expansion drafts. So it it seemed like Seattle had the opportunity to kind of grab hold of the reins, grab the NHL by the jugular vein, and really take advantage of a lot of uh, situations that teams were in, and they didn't do it. it. And that's what frustrates me is that they had the opportunity to capitalize on such an in such an an opportunity, and they didn't take it. And that just kind of leaves me a little bit disappointed. I think I would agree with that analysis, and also, you know, with someone like Adam Larson. Like in theory, he's a very solid top four defenseman, but I think over the last couple of seasons, in Edmonton, particularly in the playoffs, I don't think he was who they needed him to be. Certainly, listen, if he was, Darnell Nurse wouldn't have played a four and a half minute shift against the Winnipeg Jets right. uh, in in overtime, and so. If you're going to pick him as an unrestricted free agent and then have to throw money at him, it just begs the question, like you said, couldn't you have gone after him in free agency anyways? With that being said, uh, I just wanted to give a quick shout out also to Calgary Flames former captain Mark Giordano. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, as a Flames fan, I obviously really like that player. I think he was really a late-blooming success story Mm -hmm. that... Uh, came from inauspicious beginnings, but late in the back half of his career, established himself as a, as a top defenseman in the NHL, a versatile, smart player who could do it all. And having said that, though, at 37 years old, with a $6.75 million uh, per year contract, the end, was, the end was near, and I think it was de- definitely very logical and unsurprising that the Flames exposed him. And the thing is, though... Uh, I want to get your thoughts on this because it seemed like the Seattle Kraken, when they did pick guys that weren't UFAs and that were on a contract, everyone that they got that wasn't like cheap, like under three, four million dollars a year, were kind of like these old guys, like like Mark Giordano. And whereas, you know, it begs a question, you know, if you had if you had managed your cap a little bit differently, could they have gotten Gabriel Landeskog, who was available, if you tried to find a way to save the cap somewhere else? And surely, Gabriel Landeskog, as a as an excellent power forward and proven leader in his prime, who Colorado simply like couldn't or chose not to protect. Gabriel Landeskog's only uh, 28, and for me, yeah, sure he would have warranted a big, probably 10 million dollar salary, but. I question just a little bit the the idea of taking someone like Jordan. Like, all due respect to him, but he's so old that you know that the end is near for him. If they, since the the 
pardon me, the Seattle Kraken took so many cheap players, like, for example, John Quenville, you mentioned, 750K, Jeremy Lazan, who was pressed into a top six role for the Boston Bruins, 850K on defense, a guy like Cal Yonkroak, or as Marshawn Lynch called him, uh, boy, boy, Cali, uh, <laughs> in a very, if you just look this up on YouTube or TikTok, if you don't know what we're talking about, it's hilarious. It's Marshawn hilarious. Lynch is hilarious. Yeah, Cal Yonkroak, $2 million. Yeah, to me it was very interesting. Again, like I understanding that I, you know, I, we don't necessarily have the full picture that the GMs do, but yeah, I just I thought it was interesting how they seem to be going for a lot of cheap youth with potential, and yet when they actually picked guys who were on contract who had big contracts, it wasn't really who you expected. Yeah, I mean, like I I agree. I don't really know kind of what Seattle's kind of looking for for this season. I, I think it's so up in the air what the season could look like for Seattle. Like, it's such a such a random gong show after what happened with Vegas. But, like, it seemed like to me that Seattle was very conservative in their picking of players. And I wanted them to be more aggressive. I wanted them to go after some bigger players, some bigger names. But they chose not to do so. And I think that the best way you can explain this is what Ron Francis said two weeks before the expansion draft. And he came out in a press conference and he said, we at Seattle value cap space as the most important thing in this league. And I think that that kind of just shows a little bit about how the NHL has evolved and changed a little bit into becoming a little bit more like the NBA, where you want to have cap space to be able to sign free agents or cap space to be able to sign players you draft and keep those players around in that cap space can be used monetarily like never before. Like, for example, we, we can discuss this next time, is the Arizona Coyotes have made many trades they where have. they're taking on some bad, bad contracts to get draft picks so that way they can use their cap space in a way that, you know, allows them to get some draft picks, high draft picks that they can use and get young players for them to be better in the future. I think that what Seattle did is they didn't really do either. Um, it was reported that the Seattle Kraken were charging a first round pick and a third round pick in order for you to have an extra protection slot for your player. Okay. So what happens is like the Seattle Kraken go and they say, we're going to select this player. If you want to not for us to not select this player, you need to pay us a first and a third. That was what was reported. No team paid that price. And the Seattle Kraken still came out with this roster. Mm. I, I think about it and I go, there are some better players, some more valuable players that you could have taken and then traded away if you wanted to. Right, or like you said, it kind of sounds like they could have also squeezed teams for draft capital by threatening to mm -hmm. pick certain guys that were of value to other teams as well. Right, and like, for example, like the thing with the Carolina pick is they really liked Morgan Geeky, who's a 23-year-old young center. He looks like he has a lot of potential. But there was also Jake Bean, mm -hmm. who looked like he was going to be a very good defenseman in Carolina. He's kind of buried on the depth chart yeah. there. But they could have got him, and then if they wanted a draft pick, they could have traded him to Columbus for a second-round pick, mm -hmm. because that's what Carolina did. Yeah. Uh -huh. So And like the same thing with Nikita Zadorov. They drafted John Quenville out of Chicago, 
only for John Quenville to be, you know, let go and go back in, into unrestricted free agency when they could have drafted Nikita Zadorov and then traded him for a draft pick like what Chicago did. It seemed like, to me, they didn't value certain players. And I think that, for me personally, I think they they kind of valued Ooh. some of the wrong areas. Yeah, I, I have to be honest uh, with you folks, given my very busy job working at camp this summer and also the fact that I've been focusing exclusively on the Olympics. I don't necessarily have the full picture, but at a glance, I would agree with what you said, Tyson. Uh, I did want to point out that I think Yanni Gord from the Tampa Bay Lightning was a very, very solid pick. Very good pick. And the fact that he was available, I mean, Tampa Bay is so overpowered and so deep that there was no way that they could have protected and re-signed everybody and Losing Yanni Gord's a, a decent blow, but you know I think that's one that the, it was kind of was a, a more of a slam dunk for the Seattle Kraken. They they took him. I think he's going to be a very good, very good player for them. Let's talk now about what happened between Seattle and the Montreal Canadiens because as many hockey fans know, Montreal raised a lot of eyebrows by exposing all world goaltender Carey Price in the expansion draft because. They thought, and they pretty much knew they were going to lose their backup goalie, Jake Allen, if they had exposed him. So they decided to gamble that Seattle would pass on Price because of his age and his contract so that they could end up keeping both Price and Jake Allen. Now, notwithstanding the fact that Montreal's playoff window would have slammed shut if Seattle had called their bluff and picked Carey Price, uh, Seattle, like you said... They didn't do that. They didn't really put the screws to them at all. Instead, they picked a guy named Kale Fleury, and I know you have some thoughts about that pick. Yeah, like Kale Fleury, he's he's a young defenseman. He's got some promise. He played pretty well, you know, as a as a prospect. But like for me, like it seems like the Seattle Kraken didn't want to hold any teams to the jugular. I think what they did, and I, this is just a theory, okay is they saw Vegas and they're they're seeing what Vegas is doing with their team and we'll get into this but like they're trading away players who they just acquired a year or two years ago and you know some of their core players like Marc-Andre Fleury got traded for almost nothing uh, the a lot of the team like a lot of the franchises in the NHL are very upset with Vegas and they don't want to make trades with Vegas and Vegas is kind of in this position where <laughs> a lot of the organizations in the NHL have resentment against them. Right. Because of how they've operated. And, I mean, credits to Vegas. They're a good team. They're a quality. They have a very good product on the ice. But a lot of, you know, people are very upset about how good Vegas was in year one in the NHL in terms of league executives. And, you know, the fact that they almost drafted a Stanley Cup winning championship team oh my goodness. out of the expansion draft is, is unheard of. But, you know, like, I think what Seattle is doing is they're looking at Vegas and they're going, they are so hated around the league that it's actually going to start producing more problems for them. Oh, because they did put end up putting the screws to a lot of teams. Yes. And by pursuing cutthroat trades and drafting more aggressively, you mean. Exactly. And I think that the Kraken said, no, we're going to go more conservative. We're going to play the long game. And we're going to try and be everybody's best friend. And maybe not try and put the screws to you. So I think that that's something that was definitely talked about in, C- mm. in Seattle. I don't know if it's true, 
But that's what I think, and it's at least a theory that I have, right? So, you know, when it comes to the Montreal Canadiens, like, like Ron Francis and the Kraken absolutely could have screwed them. But I, I guess, again, they valued youth, they valued age, and they valued the potential rather than kind of the high-priced carried price, which, I mean, I don't think that I would run an organization the way that they did. But this is the choice that they made. This is the decision, you know. Uh, Carrie Price's wife came out and said, man, I was almost sure that we were going to move to Seattle. Like, I was almost sure of it. And the fact that they were even considering it, it just, it surprises me that the Kraken didn't take more advantage of the situation that they were given in. Mm -hmm. But I guess Marco, you know, Bergevin, he... He saw right through Ron Francis and he said, you're not going to want to take a $10.5 million contract, so we're not going to protect him. You can have him if you want him, and we're going to protect Jake Allen. So, While it was, uh, it was a heck of a play, and for Montreal it definitely paid off, but the other pick that stood out to me, and I'm not, not entirely for negative reasons, though, is who Seattle took from the St. Louis Blues. They took Vince Dunn, who has had injury problems recently, but he was a, if memory serves, he was definitely in a key top four defender during the St. Louis Blues Stanley Cup winning run. In 2019, he's a mobile two-way defender who's versatile, and he's certainly a, he's certainly a, a good player with the potential to get better for sure. What caught my attention is that Vladimir Tarasenko mm-hmm. was also available. And Tarasenko is a former 40-goal scorer, I would say definitely the talent to score 50 uh, if he stayed healthy and things went right for him. Uh, Six feet tall, 225 pounds, he's a tank. He's on the right side of 30 at 29 years of age. And I think we were talking about this earlier. Because of St. Louis Blues, I think, what was it? They misdiagnosed his injury or or something like that. And it created a rift between Vladimir and his team, and that was a key reason why he was left unprotected. And uh, granted, I think Vince Dunn was a, was a pretty was a pretty good pick, a 24-year-old two-way defenseman, top four capable with the potential to get better. That's not at all a bad pick. That's none too shabby. At the same time, though, I'm just thinking, you know, okay, Tarasenko also has had injury issues uh, in recent years. He has not been able to recapture his old 40-plus goal form. Still, though, I think it's an interesting talking point. I want to get your opinion on it. Yeah, I think, like, definitely Vince Dunn is one of those guys that has the possibility to really rise to the occasion in a bigger role. Like, he was kind of buried on the depth chart in St. Louis during that cup run behind Petrangelo. Boom Easter. And, you know, Pareko. You know, he was, yeah. kind of, he was kind of buried on the depth chart and wasn't giving many opportunities. Plus, you know, he's a he's young, he's a good defenseman, he's 24. He's going to be able to have an opportunity to play mm. top four, possibly even top two minutes in Seattle. And I think that this is one of those situations where maybe the Kraken are thinking that um, Vince Dunn can kind of turn into their Shea Theodore, where maybe this is a guy they take in the expansion draft and he can be a core defenseman for them for 10 years or five years. But I, I, I kind of agree with you. I really think that Tarasenko 
yes, he's got shoulder surgeries and he's dealing with that and he's hurt. And because of everything that happened in St. Louis, it's a mutual agreement that they both want out of this deal. They both want to trade. They both want to have a different scenery. But, you know, I think that because Tarasenko has such an ability to score, I think that he's going to be in high demand. Well, he was in high demand before the expansion draft because he hasn't been traded yet and mm-hmm. a lot of teams don't have cap space. That market has softened, kind of the way that Jack Eichel's uh, trade market also has been softened because not many people now can afford his cap hit. So because of that, I think that you know Tarasenko, he's not looking like he's going to be traded very soon and it's going to be tough for him to find a new spot outside of St. Louis. But I think that the Kraken could have taken him, could have traded him for a lot of value to Edmonton was rumored to be interested in Tarasenko, a good scoring right winger to play in their top six, either with Dreisaitl or McDavid. I mean, that's, that could be truly explosive. In the regular season, at least, we all know Edmonton needs a lot of depth in right. to go anywhere in the playoffs. But yes, I think they're also the kind of team who would really want that kind of firepower. Well, right. Would you rather have Ryan Nugent Hopkins and Zach Hyman, or would you rather have Vladimir Tarasenko and $2.5 million in cap space? I mean, I'd rather have Wayne Gretzky and Mario Lemieux. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's neither here nor there. No, I, I, take your, I, I take your point for sure. And so... Yeah, I think overall I would, based on what I have seen and what I do know, I would I would agree with your assessment. It seems like the Kraken were not as aggressive as they could have been. Granted, what we're going to talk about in next episode is the series of, I would say, coups mm-hmm. that they managed to pull off in free agency so far, uh, which really has beefed up this roster. But uh, we're going to save that for next time, mm-hmm. so... Did you have any more thoughts on the uh, the Kraken, or did you want to move on to the other NHL draft? Uh, just one more thought. A lot of what they took was definitely, on defense at least, was size. You know, Jamie Alexiak, 6'7", 255. He's a big boy. Adam Larson, 6'3", 230. He's a big boy. They took some really big, yeah. big And even, players. you know, Dunn's about 6'2", 205, pretty solid. Mark Giordano, 6 feet around 200. Yeah. Uh, not huge, but quite solid. And, and definitely both Dunn and Giordano are capable of playing physical as well. Yeah, like Hayden Fleury, 6'3". You know, they took some size on defense, and they went a little bit smaller. You know, on, and they didn't go on... with uh, they didn't go with uh, 6'2 Sabonis, <laughs> in the words of the great Charles Barkley. The great but... Charles Barkley, no. They, so they went big on defense and a little bit smaller on forwards. Ta- like, you know, Yanni Gord, 5'9". Jordan Everly is only 5'11", I think he Yeah, is. no, Jordan Everly definitely more of a finesse player. I, I mean, Brandon Tanev is very physical, but he's about 6'180". Yeah. He'll, be a, he'll be a key fourth liner. Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah, Callie Yarncroke's not overly big either, so on and so forth. Right, and they took, like, Carson Soucy from mm-hmm. Minnesota. Jo- Jonas Donskoy, six feet, about maybe 190. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So, you know, they, they got some size on the back mm-hmm. end, and that's something that they absolutely valued. But... No, let's transition to the NHL draft. And And the guy that most people thought would go number one overall ended up doing so, even though he said he was going to go back to Michigan for the Michigan Wolverines for another year. That obviously didn't end up happening, I think. No, I think... Owen Power, the six-foot-six defenseman, highly touted, did go number one overall, which uh, that, to the... For the Buffalo Sabres, as we know, but that came as a surprise to not very many people. <laughs> yeah, so Owen Power, he was part of the World Hockey Championship Team Canada team that won gold at the World Hockey Championship. 
uh, he's a very good top. Like he he was he really grew during that tournament. You know, he was kind of a fringe defenseman, not getting many minutes. But near the end of the tournament, the coach was really Drugerland was really putting him in some important uh, positions. And just an overall theme with this draft is you saw a lot of Americans getting drafted in this draft. And this is one of the effects of the pandemic. Um, just because of the pandemic and just because Canada didn't play many hockey games this year because we were locked down, mm. it was extremely hard for the NHL to get going in Canada. It was even more difficult for the junior leagues to get going. So, for example, Mason McTavish, he was drafted third, but he actually didn't play any games in the mm. OHL out of Peterborough. He went to the Swiss League, which, fun fact, he's actually, I think he was actually born in Switzerland. So uh, he, he was kind of familiar with that environment, but he goes back over to Switzerland and he plays hockey games over in Europe because he's a highly touted prospect. He can go over there and play and he can play games because the OHL wasn't going to play any hockey this year. Um, Owen Power, Matthew Beniers, Kent Johnson, they were all uh, University of Michigan hockey players. And, you know, Luke Hughes, National Development Program. Brother of Vancouver Canucks standout Quinn Hughes and New Jersey's uh, golden boy Jack Hughes, of course. Right. You know, the first brothers ever to go top seven in, in three drafts. Mm-hmm. Very impressive for the Hughes family. Luke obviously joining his brother Jack in New Jersey. You know, Luke Hughes, he's in the National Development Program for the U.S. He's going to be going to the University of Michigan this upcoming year. So a lot of Americans got drafted early and often throughout this whole process and a lot of canadians in the ohl went to europe like for example brant clark he's a defenseman who was taken by los angeles eighth overall he actually went and played in the czech league because you know he needed to play games and that was the only league that he could find that would be interested in him playing games this year so for a lot of canadian players it was really tough for them to kind of get going get into the league uh, get playing games for this season. And as you can see kind of later on in the first round, some of the Canadian players who had really good years the year before as 16, 17-year-olds, they started getting drafted in the late round, like 20, 20, to, 20 to 32 is kind of when they started getting drafted. The Stars drafted a guy's name is Wyatt Johnson. He was ranked in the fourth round by Central Scouting simply because he didn't play hockey this year. He Mm. had like six games in the U18 championship for Canada, kind of as a depth player, third liner, but he actually got to play those games. But other than that tournament, he didn't play anywhere this year because he couldn't find a spot over in Europe. He was hoping the OHL would get going. and, And it did not. And it did not. And, you know, he never got the opportunity to play. The Quebec League, they had their problems with COVID. They got started. They had to get shut down, and they eventually didn't finish. The WHL got started very late. Like, they Mm. got started well after the NHL, and they only played about 16, 20 games or so. So Mm. it was really hard for scouts to be, you know, clear and concise on a lot of these rankings. You know, you could kind of tell by, like, the top, like, eight or so, like, who was going where and stuff like that. But a lot of players after that completely random Mm. yeah but having said that why don't we why don't we talk about at least a few of the top picks sure owen power he's got all the measurables he's got the the reputation behind him right young guy six foot five but 
at 214 pounds, he's not a stick. He has not just the height, but the size to handle himself quite well in the NHL. According to the Hockey News, uh, they think that he could pan out as well as approaching someone like Victor Hedman if he's able to put it together at the NHL level. What do you think his chances are? You know, it's Buffalo, so you never know. <laughs> oh, yes, you, that, that is correct. Yeah. However. Like, I, I, okay, I think it's really good that he's going to be going back to Michigan. I don't trust Buffalo to develop their players. I, I'm so sad that Rasmus... Uh, Ristolainen? No, not Ra- Rasmus Dahlin. Ah, yes, yes, yes. yes. He, I'm really sad that he came over when he did, and he's been playing in Buffalo, and his development has been taking a hit. Because he's been playing in such a tough situation in Buffalo, I'm afraid that he's not going to be what he could have been because he's not being developed the proper way in Buffalo. And that makes me really sad. So I think it's good for Owen Power to not play in Buffalo this year because Buffalo's going to be bad. He's not going to play. And Jack Eichel still wants to leave. Right. He's going to go back to Michigan. He's going to continue to develop. He's going to go back. He's going to get a full year of university, which he missed because he was doing online classes all year. So I think that it would be best for Owen Power to go back to Michigan. I think that he has a good chance to be a top four defenseman in this league just because of his size and his skating. Uh, Anything past that, I'm not sure. I don't think that he... I don't think that he's going to be as good as Hedman. I really don't. I think that... Well, which I mean, that's a very tough ask. Right. Hedman almost generationally good. Almost generationally good Norris winner. Like, that's a lot to put on... That's a lot to put on Owen Power. He's definitely got some size and skill. Uh, could he be a top two defenseman? Maybe. Could he be... I think if he develops well. I think if he develops well, he has the potentially to be a good first line defenseman. I don't particularly think that he's going to put up a lot of points. I think he's going to be around a 40-point pro as a defenseman who's going to be very good defensively, good PK. Good Good size. Good size. He can play on your second power play unit. He's going to be a good two-way defenseman who's not going to be particularly great offensively, but he's he's not going to burn you defensively either. So... That's kind of where I project Owen Power to be, but just because this year in this draft, I think it's a little bit of a weaker draft than usual, so I think that that plays a part in it as well. I would agree with that. I think that's a sensible analysis, and I I personally uh, am fairly frustrated when, by the media's tendency to... I mean, I say this as a sports journalist. I mean, I'm around this all the time, but look, the media overhypes a lot of these young men Mm -hmm. uh, right coming out of college or coming out of junior leagues because and I mean I think the media obviously has their reasons for doing that and fans they have their reasons for doing that everyone loves to ask the question what if and everyone loves to get excited about uh, what appears to be young talent with a lot of potential but you know I think that like to, to, to ask questions like Who's going to be the next Connor McDavid? Like, whoa, 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 whoa. If that happened every few years, Connor McDavid wouldn't be special. Right. But Connor McDavid is obviously very special. Like, Sidney Crosby, very special. Like, Ovechkin, Sam Coase, all these guys, right? So, yeah, like, the like, which is why I kind of like how, you know, I have this magazine, uh, draft preview magazine from the Hockey News in front of me. Mm-hmm. And the way they phrase it is not a direct comparison, but best case scenarios. And so Owen Power was con- compared to Victor Hedman in that light in their big uh, top prospects uh, breakdown. I think that's right. I think that's that's reasonable. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think it's something that people should resist the urge 
to do because it's like you know and even with someone like me david like oh is he gonna be you know better than Sidney crosby well hold on Sidney crosby has been in the league how many years mm-hmm. Connor mcdavid has been in the league how many years mm-hmm. right like Connor mcdavid is a phenomenal talent and he's and unlike these draft picks, he's already proven at the NHL level. Still, he's like less than 25 years old, and all manner of things could happen to him over the course of his career, right? Maybe, maybe he will be, you know, as long-lived and as productive, or even more so than Sidney Crosby. Or maybe he gets suffers a major injury. You know, I mean, Edmonton fans are praying this never happens, mm-hmm. but maybe he suffers a major injury and isn't able to come back as well as Crosby did from his concussions. Or maybe he'll hit 32 and his speed's gonna go. And he won't be as effective because speed is one of his greatest weapons. Like, guys, we just don't know for sure. And so I think that across all sports, it's always fun to be like, oh, like, you know, is Trevor Lawrence going to be the next, I don't know, Aaron Rodgers or whatever. But I think it's ultimately more sensible and more fair to these young men to try to evaluate them based on their own merits and draw comparisons to NHL stars by way of of describing their skill set but not in the stance of is he going to be as good as a proven Norris winner or Hart winner or whatever you know what I'm saying yeah I know what you mean yeah no that makes a lot of sense you know it's tough to always think about like projections and and that's something that we like to do but we got to remember these are just kids they've got a long way to get into the NHL and a long way for their career to take place yeah and what about your thoughts on Matty Beniers, the, the second the second overall pick that went to the Seattle Kraken? I bring him up because we've been talking a lot mm-hmm. about the Kraken and, you know, sort of their interesting draft selections. Uh, but he's he, he is a center. He's not he's not big, but he uh, projects to be a very skilled, smart, two way guy. According to the Hockey News, his best case comparison is Jonathan Taves, and that is if he's anywhere near Jonathan Taves, the Kraken pick themselves yeah. a gem. So what do you think what do you think they have in him? I this is where okay, I, I, this is my opinion. I think Owen Power is more of the sure thing in this draft. I think Matty Beniers has the potential to be the best player in this draft. So high ceiling. High ceiling. I think that he's gonna be a top six player. I think that he has a chance to be a top six center. But I think that because he has all of the tools that he has to be what he can be. I think he has a chance to be almost mm. like a, a Patrice Bergeron or, you know, kind of like a, a really good defensively minded center, but also was very good offensively. You know, this kid, he was the, he was draft eligible, but he was playing for the world junior championships for the U S and they won gold at the world juniors. So, you know, he's proven that he can take a role on a team that, you know, they need to win. You know, he played in the World World Championships here for the United States. They won bronze at the World Championships, and he was playing with guys like Dylan Larkin. So I think, like, Matty Beneers, he definitely, he can be a really good pick here for Seattle. If I was Buffalo, I would have thought about taking Matty Beneers just because you've traded Reinhardt, you're going to probably trade Eichel, you need some center depth, and where you find top centers is within the first few picks of the draft. And I think that with Buffalo, they need to replenish that center depth. And I think the best place you can find one is maybe in Matty Beniers. But they chose the defenseman. They chose Owen Power. And I don't think that's going to be a bad pick. But I would have seriously mm-hmm. considered Matty Beniers first overall if I was Buffalo. 
Yeah, I think I think you make a good argument there, especially with the the specter of Jack Eichel and the fact that he probably isn't going to be there long term. Yeah, and also if memory serves, Reinhardt left as as well. Mm-hmm. I think and you might have said he that. Was, so. Yeah, he was traded to Florida. Exactly. So. Yeah, uh, I th- I think Owen Power is uh, well. First of all, you know you know me. I love measurables, and mm-hmm. Owen Power looks like a darn good prospect. Matty Beniers, you know, has potential as well, and I think Seattle is obviously banking on that. And mm-hmm. they, you know, we wish him the best of luck. Now, the last major thing that I wanted to bring up in the draft because it it is it was a draft choice, and that's why I think we should talk about it in this episode is at the bottom of the first round 31st overall logan Mayu. i think that's how you say his name mm-hmm. he was drafted by the montreal canadians tyson why is this a big deal yeah so okay this 31st and 32nd pick are is probably the worst 10 to 15 minutes in the national hockey league in recent memory like the worst 10 minutes in history in recent memory for those of you who don't know um is we have you know logan mayu being drafted but also there's a there's a sexual assault uh allegation against the blackhawks and um just based off of how the blackhawks presented their 32nd pick it seemed very insensitive it seemed like it was a spectacle um elliot friedman on his podcast the 31 thoughts the podcast he said that it seemed like it was inauthentic and it was really sad for him, you know, going through that and watching this and going, oh, this is just a show to make themselves look good in front of the NHL because of all of these allegations that are coming out against the organization. And that happened right after this pick of Logan Mayu. Now, what happened with Logan is that he was a top player in the OHL. He was playing for the London Knights. And he got the opportunity to go over and play in Sweden. So he was over and playing in Sweden. And um, what happened with Logan is while he was there, he had a consensual sexual encounter with a woman. He took pictures of that encounter uh, without consent and then distributed those pictures to his teammates Mm. on, on Snapchat. That's awful stuff. Yeah. And he went through the legal process in Sweden. He was, I think he was fined for it. He wasn't suspended. But this came out and it kind of recognizes and realized that this is a serious situation. This is a a sex crime that is not okay. And this is definitely uh, something that I think is very sad. And the NHL as a whole has kind of become numb to it almost is that there seems to be a lack of awareness about sexual assault within the NHL on multiple levels within its players, but also within its organizations that participate in the NHL. Like we've seen, like there were allegations that came out against Jake for Tannen and, you know, that whole situation, which ended up uh, him getting waived from the Canucks and bought out. And, you know, like there, there's been a whole bunch of stuff that's gone on in the NHL. That's been very yucky, very gross and very disappointing. Logan Mayu, after this, after this kind of whole situation came into the news, he made a formal public statement saying that he was trying, was renouncing himself from the draft and he didn't want to be drafted, right? Because he wanted to go back to London, play under a year of hockey, live with the consequences, and try and learn from his mistakes and make a difference. And he wanted to be 
excited about his draft year and being drafted because he believes that that is a privilege, not a right. And he doesn't believe that he's earned that privilege. Those were his words. And I, this is terrible, but let's be real. There's a lot of sex offenders out there who show 0% of the apparent self-awareness and remorse that, that Logan showed. I, you know, time will tell how much he means it and time will tell what happens with him now that he was drafted against his wishes. But, you know, I think that it was, uh... I'm having trouble finding the words for this, but I think at the very least he appears to have recognized how unacceptable and how disgusting his behavior was. He came out and not only apologized for it, but has expressed a desire to begin to make amends by foregoing the draft, realizing that being drafted is a privilege. He's expressed a desire to live with the consequences of his actions and try to become a better man in the future. I certainly hope... Uh, for his sake, for the sake of the woman he took advantage of, and for the hockey world in general, that he means these these words because it's it, it's so important to. Again, I don't. I feel like when somebody has been violated like this, words don't really do it justice. But <laughs> at the same time, you know, I think I think redemption is very important and remorse and. Facing the consequences of your actions is very, very important. And the fact that Logan's even expressed a desire to do so, I think, is a, a good sign. And uh, for one, I hope that he's able to to follow through on that. Mm-hmm. But the Montreal Canadiens, I think, did him a disservice. They did themselves a disservice. They did that woman a disservice. And they did women in general, dare I say it, a disservice, because this, to me, and to a lot of other people, says that sexual assault or sexual harassment and sexual misconduct is not serious. That you can do this and still keep your job and still... Still be a first-round pick. Still be a first-round pick, still get signed to a... Still be entitled to a, you know, six, seven-figure contract, almost as if he didn't do this. And... I, I think I read a, a headline where where it said that the Montreal Canadiens actually tried to defend this pick. Oh, yeah. To a certain, I, I have no idea where they're coming from. The message you're sending is pretty clear. It's that, hey, this person has been caught in, a, caught in an act of sexual harassment. He himself has owned that mistake and said, this is not okay, and I don't want to be drafted because I need to face the consequences of this horrible thing. And Montreal said, no, no, we're going to draft you because we think you're a good hockey player, and that is more important than what you've done as a human being. I, I don't understand where they're coming from. Yeah, I, I am frustrated at the complete and utter bullshit and hypocrisy that is coming from the Montreal Canadiens organization right now. Because what happened after this pick is the Montreal Canadiens knew this was going to happen. They had prepared a statement already. They put out the statement a few minutes after selecting Logan on Twitter saying that, you know, basically we are here to support this individual. It didn't mention the victim at all. We're here, we're here to support this individual. We believe this person is on the right track towards, 
you know, redemption, but like mm. didn't mention the individual, didn't mention the fact that this person didn't want to be drafted. It's more like we're here to support this hockey player. And it's kind of like, what are you doing at this moment? And you're kind of like doubling down almost like we're here to defend this person. And you're putting... Well, first of all, when the person themselves relinquishes their desire to be drafted and mm. acknowledges the severity of their mistake mm. and you draft him anyways, you are in no way supporting that person. Exactly. You are picking his physical talents and his athletic talents in a self-serving way with regards to your organization. That is all that is happening here like let's not let's not pretend that anything else is happening exactly they saw a top talent fall at the bottom of the first round and a whole bunch of people even the montreal Canadiens, are trying to justify it and saying if we didn't pick him somebody else would have well well does that make it okay like two wrongs don't make a right and like this is like this is simple like grade four logic where like if i don't punch david in the face somebody else might so i'm gonna punch david in the face like I'm sorry, that doesn't make sense. No. And then what ended up happening after this is on opening day of free agency, the Montreal Canadiens owner, Jeff Molson, came out and basically talked about how they had regretted the pick kind of thing, where they didn't realize that this was going to be such a problem. There was going to be so much backlash. How do you not realize I'm that? like, you put out a statement 10 minutes after drafting the kid, and you didn't think this was going to happen? Oh, and also, you have to have the self-awareness of a two-year-old to not see the fact that this was a problem coming. Right? And the problem is, is they did it on free agency day. So after an hour of it being there... Free agency opened and all of these draft picks were signed and it got buried in the news. Of course it did. So, like, the Montreal Canadiens, like, if they really regretted and they wanted to change anything, they could renounce the pick and they could do what the Arizona Coyotes did with Mitchell Miller the year prior. Exactly. And just allow him to not be, like, to be a UFA, to be a free agent and say, we're not signing you, you're released from our organization, Yeah. you're done. Yeah. And, like, you can enter the draft again next year. But they don't do that because then they would have egg on their face for taking a player in the first round who they can't have in their organization anymore. Well, I mean, listen, I think they, even just by picking Logan in a situation like this, it's it's not just egg. I think they took a large piece of horse poop and threw it on their own face. And now they're the fact that they're trying to double down on it, I think we're in agreement with a lot of other people that this, at best is an extreme lack of self-awareness and emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. And at worst... It's hypocritical, like borderline unethical bullshit because, um, geez, I say, um, cause I'm not sure what else to say right. at this moment in time. It's, it's indefensible. I, if I was, if I was Logan, uh, and if he truly believes in the remorse that he has expressed for his actions, if I was Logan, I wouldn't sign a contract. I wouldn't, I wouldn't play. For Montreal, I would, and I, and I hope he, I hope he does the right thing. I hope he sticks to the principles that he has appeared to express and say, no, I have, I've done a terrible thing, and I need to own up to that before I get to really continue with my professional career. And you know, I think the woman that he took advantage of deserves that. And he, I think that in order for him to really grow as a human being, he should do something like that, where he's like, listen, even though this organization picked me i'm gonna stick to my guns and i'm going to forego this and i'm going to try my best to make amends for what i did 
Yeah, and I think for Logan, like, that's where you have to be at right now. Like, you just have to focus on trying to do the right thing, trying to make amends in whatever way you can, make awareness to the situation about, you know, how this is bad and how this is negative and everything. But I think that this is, you know, it's tough for Logan because he didn't ask to be put in this situation. In fact, he specifically asked not to be put in this situation, right? But... You know, here he is, and it's unfortunate that the Montreal Canadiens have to, made him into, it made him have to be in this situation. And, you know, I, I don't think that the Montreal Canadiens should look at this situation fondly. But again, this is a hockey team making a hockey decision without any care for other people's personal life. And that's just. It's unfortunate because there's more to hockey than that, just what's on the ice. Yeah, before we move on, I think this really counterpoints to what we were talking about earlier with the Olympics. Like, mm-hmm. in the Olympics, we not only cheer for people as athletes, but we cheer for them as people and mm-hmm. for their stories and for the positive things that can happen in the world of sports. Obviously, a lot of negative things happen in the world of sports also, and it's far from the first time that a, and a team or an organization has shall we say, done nothing to help when a negative thing, a crime, has been committed mm-hmm. against an innocent person. And But to see it continue to happen, it will never not be disappointing. I think if you were raised right, it will never not be disappointing to you. I think that if you were raised right, you're not okay with this. And it, it it's... Man, like, hum, human nature is human nature. I, I think that that's, that's, all I, else, that's all else I have to say about it. And... We hope that Logan does the right thing for himself, for for the woman he hurt, and for his family and his community, and, and as well. And we would like to finish on an actual cheery note, so we're going to do that, and we're going to switch to another sport. Can the Canadian women's soccer team. No doubt, everybody has heard that they made history earlier mm-hmm. this week, defeating the United States in a major competition for the first time in 20 years. Tyson, I remember that highly controversial game in uh, 2012, mm-hmm. where there was it was an exciting back and forth game, but also a lot of dicey officiating at best. And unfortunately, we as Canadians came out on the losing end of that, managed to regroup for a bronze, which I was super proud of our ladies. But to be able to not only beat the U.S. but to just smother them, mm-hmm. zero goals allowed against a program that has been the class of the world for uh, the past 10 plus years was truly impressive. Uh, our goalie, our goalie, goalkeeper, sorry, this mm-hmm. is soccer. Our goalkeeper, Stephanie LeBay, has battled through injuries to put forth two clutch performances in a row, shutting out Brazil on penalty kicks and then shutting out the U.S. in regulation. And you know what this means, Tyson, as many do. Mm. We can finish no worse than a silver medal, which would be the best finish in Canadian women's soccer history. And that's something to be excited about. Yeah, that's super exciting and super awesome for, you know, Christine Sinclair, the international leader in goals for the women's soccer. Like, that's something that's so awesome and so special. You know, she's 38 years old. She's definitely, this could be her last Olympics. And it probably will be, given all the battles she's been through. (laughs) Right, and I expect her to be, 
in the you know women's national team program as you know a coach or executive or you know skills development but just to be around the team for a long time just because of who she is and everything like that but you know this is probably her best chance to go out on top and the fact that she's already there and she's already gotten you know the best medal the best placement in canadians you know history for soccer that's something so awesome and so special but also to see you know some of these young players rise to the occasion in the olympics yeah it's something that's super special and you know just great to see one thing uh, one thing that again really it shows who sinclair is as a leader was that she gave the ball to a I believe a 23-year-old player, mm-hmm. Jesse Fleming, who scored the critical penalty shot to lift Canada over the U.S. And that's, you know, that's unselfish. That's maturity. That's also trusting in your teammates. And as we know, good leaders delegate and good leaders also trust the people around them. Christine Sinclair has done that for most, if not all, of her career. And gold or silver, I think... I, for one, am going to be so super proud of this team, super happy for them, but we hope it's gold, and since we are recording this episode on the Thursday night, by the time you folks hear this episode, you'll know what happened, Mm -hmm. and I think no matter what, we Canadians, uh, this is just one more massive cherry to add on top of a very sweet cake Mm -hmm. that's been the 2021 2020, my goodness, Mm -hmm. the official 2020 Olympic Games in Tokyo. So mm-hmm. we folks, we hope you are en- are going to enjoy the rest of the Olympic Games, and we hope you enjoy following along with all the uh, drama that happens in the in the off seasons in uh, our major sports leagues. And we will revisit a lot of that in our next episode, including the NBA draft and the hurricane of trades mm-hmm. and free agency signings. In the NHL, spoiler alert, the Seattle Kraken are heavily involved (laughs) once again. But until then, folks, take care of yourselves. Uh, Have a great one. For Tyson, I'm David. We're signing off from the draft. Thank you for listening to The Draft Board. Podcast music, intro, and outro is produced by Graham Bass. Your hosts, again, are David Song and Tyson Workington. Come back next week for more insight from the rink, the turf, and the court. See you soon.